This is Up The Creek, the definitive Jonathan Creek podcast with your host, my good friend Daniel Krupa and me, Gav Murphy. Today we meet Jonathan Creek and Maddie McGellan and we tackle the problem of the wrestler's tomb. Daniel, how old were you when The Restless Tomb was on the BBC? I just had my 11th birthday. Ah. This was by far my favourite TV show as a kid. I used to genuinely look forward to this being on on a Saturday night on BBC One. Absolutely, yeah. I I remember just there was something about it which made it feel different to the other stuff that I watched. And the other stuff I watched was like Murder, She Wrote, Columbo, A-Team. There's something about this that I just loved a lot more and... I, it just felt a lot classier. And obviously, as a 12-year-old boy, that's what I was after mostly, was class in but my TV watching. Also, as a 12-year-old boy, you probably go through a phase where you're quite interested in magic. Most young boys do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some don't grow out of it. That's okay. <laughs> we obviously love this show. Otherwise, it'd be very strange to start a podcast about something that you disliked. I'm sure there's quite a lot of those in the world, to be fair. But we both have a huge soft spot for Jonathan Creek. And, you know, in our previous jobs, we worked at IGN. And it would crop up now and again because that website has a big following for shows like Sherlock and Doctor Who. Both shows that are absolutely fine. They have their audiences. But I, I always kind of feel a little bit... Every time I see people losing their minds for those shows in other countries not just britain a part of me is kind of being like why aren't you watching jonathan creek like this you're always like you don't know (laughs) well it was a recurring joke we always used to say one day we do every episode ranked which is quite a um, typical ign feature yes also i realized in the process of that mean you're way more into jonathan creek than everybody else why i think i like it is you described loads of shows that you liked which Mm. tend to be apart from columbo whodunits yeah. Jonathan Creek is a whodunit in the great detective tradition, but it's also mm. how the hell did they do it? So you get like a double with Jonathan Creek. And I think like that was part of it is trying to guess how it was done as a 12-year-old boy, but actually knowing that there was no way that I was ever going to be able to actually guess it. But because I was so young, when the actually impossible thing is revealed to you, I was still young enough that I would go, that's amazing. Whereas, you know, as an adult, and it comes up as a theme in this very first episode, it's mind-numbingly banal. So as an adult, you may be a little bit resistant to it. As a child, you're like, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. But yeah, so this podcast is going to go through every single episode of Jonathan Creek. And you're obviously starting at the beginning, starting with a pilot. So this entire episode of this podcast may be slightly different because obviously we have to meet the characters first. We have to meet our hero. Uh, and it's quite a muted uh meeting for him i think it's a brilliant introduction very few heroes of popular culture do you meet at a checkout quick save checkout doing mental arithmetic that's my kind of hero i made it 43 pounds 67 sorry well that's not what the computer says i'm afraid so did you want any cash back the computer's wrong i don't know how you've got a fault in there something with your software it's such a like a lovely british way of doing it as well he's not doing something heroic he's not doing something big it is heroic there's money at stake (laughs) he's quibbling over 25 pence at a supermarket checkout that is the most british hero i can imagine (laughs) 
25p. Absolutely what brilliant. A but, you know, it kind of shows you a lot about that character in that one scene because it shows a lot of the big themes of all of Jonathan yeah. Creek, which is how he interacts with public, how he interacts with women. He's um, nerdy. He's obviously intelligent. He's conscientious. He's fine yeah. for someone else. <laughs> basically Superman. He's basically yeah. Superman in a duffel coat. <laughs> <laughs> but he's also, because he's quite an oddball, especially early on in this show. Because that's something we've talked about a lot before. Women definitely seem to find him intriguing, at least. There's something quite charming about him, whether he realises it or not. Well, this is the thing, like, is he... Obviously, I don't remember how I felt about him as a 12-year-old, like, sexually. I wish I did. But is he is he meant to be attractive to the opposite sex? I was thinking about this, because this is 1997, and obviously yeah. our view of the world was very different because we were 11 and 12. That was around the time of the height of lad culture. I wonder if he's just such an atypical 30-year-old man for 1997 that he stands out a bit more. Yeah, because I guess at that time in the UK, you had, you know, we'll get on to talking about Caroline Quentin, but we you had like men behaving badly. I remember watching that and thinking, I do like this and I am laughing, but these people would make fun of me if we met in real life. <laughs> Whereas Jonathan's not making fun of me. Yeah, he'd be my friend. I think what this first episode does quite a lot rewatching it is really emphasize how lonely he is. Because after the shop, he goes with his two cheese sandwiches and a Barbie back to the windmill. <laughs> and he's so isolated. He literally lives yeah. alone, but also very isolated from society. And everyone, when they talk about him, they, they say, is he asexual? He's a bit of a loner. Uh, he mm. kind of rationalizes it at one point. He says that living alone concentrates the mind. I don't even know if yeah. he believes that or something he's no. telling himself. All his family live overseas and left him. So he's really isolated himself, which is why I think he does get taken with Maddie and wants to get involved in all these adventures that he goes on. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, yeah, that brings us nicely on to... My name's Madeline Magellan. I'm researching a book about bungled police prosecutions over the... Well, it's in connection with the death of a Mrs. Doreen Harker, who I understand rather tragically hanged herself last week while in police custody with some thick copper wire. I was wondering, to be honest, where she might have got hold of the... The stuff that I love about Jonathan Creek is so rooted in how she behaves. She's obviously taken the part of the audience in her character yeah. and it's kind of like she's unpacking the uh, the reality that Jonathan is setting out in, as uh, we're doing it alongside her. Well, she's very much like Watson. She literally <laughs> writes them down and circulates yeah. them in the public. And in future episodes, he becomes semi-quasi-famous with mm. some groups of people. First impressions of her, I say I don't remember my sexual feelings about Jonathan Creek when I was 12 years old. I fucking remember them about Maddie Magello because I loved her. I thought she really? was amazing. Yeah, oh man, yeah. I think it's just like, I think she's a beautiful person, but also at the same time, just an amazing confidence. That's something I can see you being into. Oh, 100% as well. But also... Um, and this is not having a go at her, confident beyond her successes. <laughs> yeah, I rewatching this, can you figure out if she's good or bad? She describes herself as a journalist. She under, she employs lots of underhand tactics, which, you know, some yeah. strains of journalism do. Mm. But is she good? Well, that's one of the questions that I keep coming up, especially in this episode as well. Some of the stuff that she does, even if she were to write a feature based on those things, what's the, like... 
journalistic equivalent of being struck off <laughs> if you're a doctor because she cheats her way into what she knows as the victims like one of the victims houses saying that she's her carer any answer surely any answer you get from her at that point you can't then write a feature about her and then go how did you get this information oh i told her i was uh, a therapist yeah you can't use that false pretenses that is bad man just 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 going by the cover of her book courage and conviction by madeline mcgowan uh, it looks really trashy. Well, I think Jonathan nails on the head and he's like, oh yeah, I've seen it in the top shelf of WH Smith with a decapitated prostitute on the cover. But she's an investigative journalist. But it sounds like she is fairly successful because mm. she has got people off previously. And yes. when the police nab poor Stephen Grismall, he reaches out to her to fight on his behalf. Mm. So she is fairly well known in her own regard, I guess. Mr. Shell's wife never left her office that morning. From what they're saying, there's no way on earth she could have got out without someone seeing her. She did it, and she'll watch me go down for it unless someone like you can nail her. We've met these two powerhouses of British TV. If you're an overseas listener... We cannot stress how I... Twin pillars, sometimes, they're referred to in the UK. And then, obviously, these two characters have got to come together. I think in the X-Files, they pretty much meet instantly. Like, Mulder and Scully meet in, like, mm. the second scene, I think. Yeah. It takes about half an hour. We don't want to rush it. I think, um, I think, actually, Kevin Feige looked at this first episode and went, <laughs> you don't want to rush it. So the first time they meet is Adam Klaus, a fantastic character, brilliantly played by Anthony Stewart Head in the first episode, and then unfortunately he goes off to do Buffy. I think it's a real shame that it loses him. It's a real shame. But they meet, anyway, Jonathan and Maddie meet for the very first time at Adam Klaus. He's quite a well-known magician. So Jonathan is his ingenue, and they meet at his show. Maddie's come there to see if she can meet Francesca. Jonathan is just working. He's just grafting. And they meet at the bar in what is essentially the silent movie scene, uh, like a silent comedy scene played out. Again, like you were saying, classy, classy yet again. Honestly, is a shot down, you see some cocktail sausages, then you see Jonathan going in for one with a cocktail stick. What does he get? Gets one of Maddie's sausage-like fingers. And then she just sort of like brings it up in this really odd, over-the-top sort of vaudeville way and sort of sucks on it as if he's pricked it really, really hard. It's brilliant. Also, I love how confident Jonathan was he was getting it without looking. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. That says a lot about his character, to be fair. Um, you know, we, David Renwick did One Foot in the Grave before this, which is quite a broad British sitcom. If that scene was in... Uh, one foot in the grave with a big laugh track underneath there. Nobody would bat an eyelid. That is something that Victor Meldrew would do. He you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> um, exactly. What I didn't notice until I recently rewatched it is he apologizes for that. He says, because this is like the start of the kind of little tension thing. He says, he says yeah. oh, I'm sorry I poked you. Which is, again, is Jonathan that oblivious or is that Jonathan's weird way of flirting? Well, that apology comes just before the like second big meeting, yeah. really, which is uh, an amazing scene. But it comes just before they enter an Indian restaurant at lunchtime um, to have their first sort of big meeting. One thing that I noticed as well after rewatching it is Caroline Quentin gives herself the idea that a magician is the one to help her start solving murders. Do you know who can help me solve uh, impossible things? Magicians. That's who. And then Francesca then the you know lady behind all the bad stuff says actually the person you want is the ingenue the one who does all the tricks and then that's how the entire thing starts that's bonkers i love it if i was francesca and i just murdered him 
And I know Jonathan has a brilliant mind. I would not yeah. say, hey, you want to go speak to him. <laughs> He'll definitely figure it out. Keep it I quiet. I, that's the thing. I There's a lot of stuff that she does throughout all of it that I think, are you really brilliant or are you fucking moron? Because that is mad. You literally are the architect of your own downfall there. And the downfall of so many other baddies. 31 other baddies, technically. Um, you've just completely made that. Well done, Francesca. Simple is best, is what we'll say quite often. But in that scene at the Indian restaurant, a lot of the tension's already there, just before they go in. I thought we could go somewhere and talk. I know you're a whiz at all these magic tricks and things, and I just wanted to pick your brains about something. And you don't want to go to bed with me? I beg your pardon. Again, kind of implying that he can't he can't handle subtext with women or anything she's like that. In, she's into him. She's intrigued by him. She's as intrigued by him mentally as he probably is of her confidence, I think. Maybe projecting too much of myself on him again, but there's a lot of twelve year old uh, Gav coming out here. Oh yes. The That's best probably kind. gonna get yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was really into chocolate raisins. Cause I, really? I would sit yeah, I would really I would sit at home on a Saturday night and I would spend my pocket money on a big bag of chocolate raisins and I would watch Jonathan Creek. That was, my, that was me. Big Saturday. I mean, 150 miles northeast of you, probably another little chunky lad in East Lancashire doing quite a similar thing. Oh, imagine, imagine if we'd been friends, it'd have been great. The thing that I really like about the Indian meal, I feel like it sets up. It gives David Renwick, the creator and the writer, it gives him like a get out of jail free card for every episode of Jonathan Creek that's about to come because he does a magic trick for her then she forces him to explain it and he says look I don't want to tell you because the solution is so mind-numbingly banal you you won't be satisfied by it you absolutely won't be satisfied by it and he tells her she is completely dissatisfied by it and I feel like there Renwick is kind of setting up every single episode of Jonathan Creek and be like look it's all gonna be fucking mad but you're not allowed to be angry about about it because it's magic and that's how magic works it's like it's just mystery in general or yeah mi- like detective narratives not knowing is way more tantalizing than the one fixed explanation it's that jj abrams mystery box or yeah. it's even sherlock holmes when he makes the fantastical deductions and they go how how you blow my mind and when he explains them that it's a bit of dirt on their shoe well, that's boring but she forces him to do a trick which is a bit naughty that trick because he says he throws the tissue over a shoulder. I've rewatched it. They definitely don't do that in the take. So there's cr- camera trickery involved. There's some magic tricks where the method is really beautiful. So some, sometimes, you know, Penn and Teller revealed how they've done tricks. It's because the method isn't actually that boring. It's actually so ingenious or beautiful. You're like, oh my God, it's actually better than the trick, the effect. Well, I, I, I kind of think that with... This trick, though, he says, look, if I told you, it's so mind-numbingly banal. But actually, when he explains to her, like, oh, you know, I spoke to the waiter before, I did this, I did this. I feel like that is impressive because he's like, I knew you were going to ask me to do a trick. So I set up all this different stuff. And I, I feel like the effort that he's gone to, for me, that's as good as wizards exist. You know, like I th- flew to the other dimension and that's how I knew. Thing is, we both like magic. And like Jonathan Creek. <laughs> Some people really don't like that. I did not know this until I was an adult. Uh, a lot but of people I did like not it. know that people do not like magic. Some people think maybe they've been fooled, like cheated, in a way that is more manipulative than it is. Some people yeah. just... 
I don't know. <laughs> Gav, sometimes people don't have wonder in their hearts. That is true, though. And it's sometimes a genetic failing on their behalf. I remember speaking to... A, so when, it's, when I found this out as an adult, adult, I remember speaking to someone, they were like, yeah, but it's not real, though, is it? And I'm like, I don't care. Like, Most magicians I- know it's not real. <laughs> I love the idea that sounds like, yeah, I know where we did it. It's like, yeah, I don't care. Like, I know he didn't fly to another dimension to pick up that bit of paper and bring it back. That's fine. I'm, I've made peace with that. That is mind-numbingly banal. So, Gavin, any uh, magic trick consists of three parts. In mm-hmm. the same way, any episode of Jonathan Creek consists of three parts. We have the effect, which is the impossible, not always a murder, the impossible event which Jonathan is uniquely positioned to explain. The second part we're going to refer to as the method, which mm-hmm. is what is the solution to the impossible effect and how does Jonathan get there? And the final part, the reveal, how they catch the killer. Why did they do something so elaborate in the first place? Okay, cool. So what's the effect then for this first episode? Famous artist Headley Shale has been shot dead in his house. His mistress, Francesca, bound and gagged. And his wife is the lead suspect, but she has a rock-solid alibi. She's been in her office all morning. There's no possible way she committed the murder. So how does she get out of her office, go home, murder Headley, and then get back to the office without being noticed? So yeah, the police are running with that as that is the idea. And that is, as the audience, that's what we're going along with and trying to work out and then... It's rubbish. It's the least, le- for the very first episode, it's the least impossible crime, I think, in the entire show. Yeah. Because it's only impossible because Maddie assumes uh, Selena is definitely guilty. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, isn't it? They all kind of go with it because of the infidelity. And the infidelity is right in front of our eyes because the person he's having an affair with, Francesca, is left at the crime scene. Then they go, right, well, he's been cheating on her. We've got a angry wife and that's what's happened. And it's weird because she's the secondary suspect. The first one is yeah. this poor bastard, Stephen, yeah. who's, who's, who's brought in. Because it's literally the, nothing to do with it. The crime looks a little bit like some robberies he's done. And he's like, murder. I'm not done, I'm not done a murder. He can't believe it. He's like, all right, I'll cop to the robberies. You've got yeah. me. I'm not done a fucking murder. One thing that just I absolutely love in this first episode is we meet uh, DS Owen Davey. Uh, and when he speaks to Selena, the main suspect, the camera just fucking zooms in, Jaws style, on a bit of red that looks exactly like blood on her uh, shirt. And she goes, it's matte paint. And they go, oh, it's fine. Yeah, all right. Oh, <laughs> they don't even check sweet. it. And he goes back to the they office. They don't even going, check they go, it. Oh, yeah, she has some red um, um, marks on her sleeve. Yeah, oh, my God, was it, it was matte blood? Paint. Matte paint. <laughs> Who told you that? The suspect. Oh, good one. Good one. Yeah, see you later. Uh, <laughs> but I think this might become a very recurring theme in these episodes is the yeah. police are utter shite. And I think this is the problem with any of these shows where you're getting a, a mystery ro- novel writer or a consultant. And a magician's ingenuity. Magician to, to help out with these crimes is you, you've basically got to proceed from a state where your police are shit. It is. Not to, not to give lots away for the, how this series is going to go. It is quite some time in, and if you want, it's years uh, from when these were actually going out before we meet a competent detective. And when we meet that competent detective, he's one of the best characters in Jonathan Creek, and I cannot wait. But also, I, I wrote some notes down. In the first, the CSIs are not wearing gloves. 
<laughs> just collecting evidence in their bare hands. They're yeah. questioning Francesco while they're zipping oh. up Headley's body. I what love is, that. What interview technique is that? Because, <laughs> like, even even if, you know, from the start, you just go, well, she was tied up. It couldn't have been her. You, then, then you've got to treat her as a victim. But what you are doing is, I don't know, what you're treating her like. You're, you're traumatising her further. <laughs> Also, there's another one. When they go back to the when Jonathan and Maddie sneak back into the house later on to yeah. sleep about, they're in the bedroom and they see on the carpet there's blood. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think they're not even taking away stuff that actually has blood, let alone that yeah. pain. No wonder they need these people to come in because left to their own devices, poor Stephen Griswold, <laughs> he's going to jail for a long time, baby. Maybe this is why Maddie's uh, so prolific. There's one of these cases yeah. every week. All right, I cop for that one. Okay. The Arundel Road job, I'll come quietly. But this Edley was his face. No way, not my style. So the method, the solution of how Selena got out of her office and got back to kill Headley. There's yeah. this weird fake-out solution where after snooping around their office, Jonathan constructs this model where yeah. he realises that it's possible for Selena using a very wide array of elaborate devices to slip out of the office, including yeah. a remote telephone, a bug rigged up to her desk, some fake legs, a smoke machine. I feel like a woman who runs like one of the most famous modeling magazines or fashion magazines in the world could pro- rather than set all this up, could probably just pay someone. Just yeah. pay someone to go kill him. He's in his house by himself all day. Like, yeah. I think you'd be all right. He Absolutely. really sells it up because when they're in the car after snooping mm. around the office, mm. he really presents it like. He's got the key. What difference does her name make? Well, a very big difference if it was Yates. Why? Because it would explain how Serena Shale managed to get out of that room to go home and kill her husband. But it's odd as well, that bit, because it is very un-Jonathan Lee. He doesn't do that a lot, but that is... When this was first shown on the BBC, it was a two-part, and that is the cliffhanger. <laughs> so it goes from that to him at the beginning of the next episode revealing to Maddie in his uh, windmill she's coming into his lair and he's revealed to her showing this amazing model um, then right at the beginning of the episode he's like well obviously it's just bollocks isn't it obviously that's not right obviously that isn't it's how real it was done put handbrake on yeah and he doesn't do that a lot he only does that really in the first episode you don't see him do it that much really why does he do it I always think that the way that he's done it is just to show that if it was this this is how he would work it out if this was a magic trick this is how he would do this magic trick it's almost like a bit willy dangling as well being like look if I was if I had to do this this is how I would do it and you will you would believe it because Maddie goes along with it and she absolutely believes it. and she's like oh my god that's amazing he's like well obviously this is not real is it but the actual solution on how he gets there is still just as impressive obviously Francesca did it and uh, Francesca shot him Headley barely knew her he'd worked with her a little bit he'd painted her gave her the painting which I feel like as a model is got to be a bit of a slap in the face because you just go I did this painting of you I don't want to put it in. yeah you can have it you can have it I don't want to even want to sell it but she's she's the one that did it all she orchestrated the entire thing I you know to be famous she wanted to be the sort of lover of a murdered person uh, and sell her story to the papers and this is around this time where tabloid in the UK which is fucking 
paying so much money for just horrible dirt on people that Headley Shale being a famous artist and having this really sexy story around his death, she would have made so much money from it. She'd be on telly. She'd get a regular gig on telly somehow. I feel that's why she goes to the Adam Klaus show. She almost wants to start making contacts. And she does get sucked up into the Adam Klaus show. She gets put on fucking stage. She gets, she meets him once and next... She doesn't know the timing. She doesn't know the timing. <laughs> Although, to be fair, she's really good. Yeah. Really <laughs> so, so she shoots Headley using yeah. her feet. Mm-hmm. Which she does through practice and as some kind of mechanism involving an elastic band. An elastic band, yeah. And so she, that's after binding and gagging herself and blindfolding yes, herself. That's right, yeah. So the elastic band is one of the big clues that Jonathan finds while Adam and him go round to her house for dinner and they find the painting that Headley's done of her with loads of gunshots in it. Absolutely bewildered by it. They and then this whole thread then starts to come where there's this big vendetta where maybe the murderer is still out there and trying to get at her. But Jonathan finds an elastic band and, you know, not much is made of it. She, he's just kind of got it in the background. And then there's another clue. So when they're snooping around the house, they beat the housekeeper, Katrina Topless, who Headley is actually having an affair with. Mm. And she just says something quite... She picks up a letter and starts yeah. looking really sad at it. That She said she picked it up when she came in the house that day and found yeah. Headley dead. And Jonathan just looks at it, poring mm. over it. I think it's because... If for the first time, Francesca's um, series of events don't match up yeah. with the reality. Because Francesca said that Headley had already been down to let her up into the house. Yeah. It, if, it's like Jonathan Porter's out. You would open an important letter from the tax man. But then all these like little clues all come together in one very important epiphany. Which involves Mr. Bean. Um, which... It, weirdly and sadly in a way is one reference that I don't have to explain to anybody who's American who's listening because while you may not know what Jonathan Creek is and maybe you've just started your journey and I can't wait for you to go on this journey you will definitely know who Mr. Bean is. Jonathan is watching Mr. Bean he leans down to switch it off puts his foot on it and then it all comes together you get this big crash zoom on his face and he puts it all together what she's done does it make sense <laughs> i i mean i'm I happy sh- with it again i don't know if this goes, comes back to the incompetent police i reckon because yeah. they said they make a point of the fingerprints matching no one you found some prints on the gun right were they mine mr Grisby. were they mine the fingerprints on the gun don't appear to belong to anyone connected with this case but then you might have borrowed the gun and wore gloves it's hardly a testament to your innocence is it if you're taking those fingerprints you've got to go this person's got crazy hands yeah <laughs> Well, that's the thing, isn't it? The the big thing is the reason that they haven't been able to place the fingerprints is because they do not belong to fingers. They belong to feet. Uh, (laughs) But I'm just looking at my foot now. But feet and feet prints and handprints surely are not interchangeable. (laughs) No. Like, it would look like a foot. It's a different shape. Yeah. Nigel, we need. Like, I've just mopped this up. Um, this yeah. is what the person's hand looked like. Um, it looks like yeah. it's hand size seven. We think it's a wolf. A wolf has got it. There's a number of things. They don't make any sense until you put them all together. Why was that rubber band on the bedroom floor? Why was the letter on the doormat? Why would someone fire bullets through the middle of a painting? Why would they? First, clear your mind of all preconceptions. This is more calculated and evil than we imagined. Right, the reveal. 
They pin it on Francesca finally at the Adam Klaus show in a dressing room. It takes them stealing her way in scales. <laughs> I guess doing her. I always think as well, did they actually take them? I really like the idea that they didn't actually take the footprints from her thing and have just gone, we took your weighing scales. Oh, well, we've just got them back from the lab and they said that. And then she, that's literally when she does the turn. This is a, one of my favourite reveals in all of Jonathan Creek, though, because we actually get a really good femme fatale turn. And you don't get that a lot in Jonathan Creep because a lot of the time, a lot of the people who've, who are the baddies are quite sympathetic baddies. It's not always murders. No, and, and it's done for reasons as well. You're like, oh, oh, yeah, I'm kind of on your side a little bit. You've obviously gone through it through nefarious means, but, you know, you were for, you, someone's forced your hand. Someone's forced your hand. It's a um, complex show. But I think that with this, you actually, she's, she's, she's a wrong one. She's an absolute wrong and and she's been caught. And the way that she sort of lashes out, it's just like, you want my story now? It'll cost you double. I'm <laughs> just like, yes. <laughs> I love that bit. Also, <laughs> l- little little shout out for insecure, deferential Jonathan, who at the beginning of the episode, we've meant to believe is quite awkward in social situations, absolutely yeah. nails the delivery of how it was done in front of an audience yeah. of people. I'd feel really awkward, you know. And like, I, I don't mind. I'm quite a confident person, but I feel like faced with someone where I've got to be like, actually, no, I I, uh, I know you did a murder. I've, uh, You're facing an actual I, last- murderer. That's what I would be like. I'd be like, um, well, the thing is, um, you actually did that. Like, I don't think he I could be as it. brazen as he was. Like, I almost think he, this is a bit where you go, you like this. Well, also as well, I, th- I feel like it's even a bigger thing that, yes, he likes this, but I think he does also like having Maddie there as well. Oh, absolutely. Maddie does that, but obviously he didn't. Did he, Francesca? And it's like a really big turn where Caroline Quentin's like, and Caroline Quentin loves it. Yeah. Like, absolutely loves it. Once you actually start breaking it down as well, and you're like, holy shit, you've got to remember, like, like who was she trying to frame? Was she, did she know about Stephen Grismold? Yeah. Or it, is that just a happy coincidence? And then the it's a really, really bad coincidence for her because then that guy remembers Maddie and it's just like, bring Maddie on. Why is she letting, why is she telling Maddie about this guy? Uh, if I was Francesca <laughs> and they found Stephen Griswold, point it all towards it was him. him. It was him. Because yeah, that's yeah, yeah. just done and done. Police, the police would want an easy case because they're obviously incompetent. Yeah. They're like, can't believe we found him. This never, this never happens to us. If I was her, I'd just be like, yeah. Oh man, actually, what's his name? Steve. Yeah, Stevie. I remember um, Headley was always on the phone to a guy called Stevie, and he was really afraid yeah. of him. Said, and Stevie said he was going to kill him. So yeah, it's uh, probably that. I live uh, Scouser. Yeah, yeah, Mancunian. Yeah, yeah. What you said. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sounded like <laughs> Mancunian hands. Um, hands like feet. <laughs> you were nothing to him. You're less than nothing. No, I will never be nothing again. We absolutely love Jonathan Creek, and I think part of that is the elements that make every single Jonathan Creek episode. So we're going to go through these every episode of this podcast, starting with the things dated the most in this episode that you think. I've got the supermarket quick save. That'll be £43.92 then, please. 67 Excuse me? Sorry about this. 
There's always some smart early. That's right. I used to bloody love a quick save, Daniel. I tell you that. Absolutely loved it. Do you remember like no frills? Like yes. that was their own brand stuff, which was just white cartons with black on it, which now ahead of their time. Ahead of their time. Whereas at the time, I remember getting bullied for having no frills crisps <clears> at school. Today, the designer earning a fortune. All you've done is slapped Helvetica <laughs> on white. And I'm paying you for that, yeah, but it takes an eye, doesn't it, to see that. No frills looked fucking cool, man. But I used to get bullied like shit for having it. Well, Tesco, I think Tesco's basic, if you think about it, like just the blue, it's very style goes in cycles, graphic design. Absolutely, yeah. I guess like with Tesco, then this is a genuine thing. What And the same with no frills as well. They obviously not put any color in it because color ink would have cost a lot more. So black and white, which is just black printed on white. They probably have spent, they were literally no frills. There's no frills on it. So in my head, quick save and like spa are the two, mm. like, other super I think there are still some spas though. The spa in Aberystwyth was voted the best spa in the UK. Wow. Uh, Imagine yeah. somebody visiting it thinking it was an actual spa. Yeah. <laughs> what? Um I, I did um look this up. So Quick Save is a British now defunct supermarket chain. Yes. But there have been over the years various independent and small state chains in America called Quick Save. And Ted, oh, really? Ted Bundy worked at one in Seattle. Do you think David Renwick knew that? Yeah, oh, Renners. Renners knows it all. What's, what's your thing that's dated the most? It's the BT answer phone thing. What are you doing? Well, I try and tap into her answer machine, see where it took me. BT response 80s have a two-digit code. That's 99 possibilities. 35. You're not serious. 36. 36. Bingo. The fact that, and I, because I watched this so young, I don't know if I only know about this because of Jonathan Creek. And there's a lot in this show that I think I know about because it was in Jonathan Creek. The way that Maddie gets asked uh, access to Francesca's um, answer phone, if that's not clear, is she knows yeah. her phone number. So therefore she can ring up and access her voicemail, essentially. And yeah. you only need a two digit access code password. So obviously there's right. only 99 possible configurations for that. So you just go through yeah. them one by one. So back then in 1997, you could access anyone's private messages. Just with a bit of time on your hands. Just a bit of time and knowing how to count, which is that, wild. That that can't be right. I think it is. If it is, that is ridiculous. That is a really like, dated thing, considering like how much we talk about like just data security and all things like that, yeah. how much you know about how to format your passwords. The fact that you can just get into anyone's mail. British Telecom are just relying on people having more time on their hands than to just go through and try 99 combinations of two-digit codes. Also, it's not far off the era where national tabloid newspapers were consistently hacking people's voicemail answer phones. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know when you hear, like, telephone hacking, and they're like, oh, the sun hacked so-and-so's thing. This, is this what they were doing? Because Maddie Miguel, she used to work for the sun. It's not quite hacking, is it, really? I think hacking is sort of... I love it if you said that to her, she went, how'd they get in there? Of course it's hacking. Got mm. in? Hacking. Oh, <laughs> oh, voicemail message didn't come to me. So that, that's how things that have dated the most. So yours is quite a British one, and which brings us very lovely on to another element that make up a brilliant Jonathan Creek episode, the most British thing. And this is like, I've tried to get, you know, my American friends that are into Sherlock, mm. um, that have maybe watched Sherlock, you know, Doctor Who, because there is a definite American audience for those shows, like a big American audience. For some reason, Jonathan Creek has never really taken off, and I wonder if that's because, you know, Sherlock and Doctor Who could really exist anywhere, whereas Jonathan Creek plants his feet firmly 
in uh, British culture. And I wonder if just sometimes it's a little bit too much. In the sense of Americans. humor as well, like the, the way it transitions between quite serious and grim, macabre yeah. stuff, and then quite light, bawdy, risky comedy, like risky yeah. comedy and innuendo. It's kind of like low and high. Yeah, it's um, it's really odd because because David Renwick is before this, he was very he was known for doing One Foot in the Grave, which you said is a very broad sort of sitcom with a laugh track. There's a lot of lines in Jonathan Creek that if they were put into One Foot in the Grave or if they had a laugh track, you wouldn't think it was odd. No, because there's a lot of just strange little things that like little jokes now and again, like little sort of put downs and odd things that. If it was anybody else, people would be like, if it was a laugh track on it, people would be laughing at it. And yeah, it there's, a, out of place. You, there's definitely a beat where you go, uh, there you go, and then um, you resume your dialogue. But for me, in this episode, I think the most one of the most British things is Stephen Grismel's arrest. So he's sitting in a busy cinema, and uh, the policeman comes in with two uh, bits of cards, sort of cue cards. Uh, the first one says, Stephen Grismel? Question mark. <laughs> And he sort of like nods and then he takes the next cue card over and says, you're nicked. <laughs> One, what a mad way of doing it. Yeah. And two, you're nicked. Yeah. So, you don't hear that enough anymore. Yeah, it's like gone the very love actually approach to making an apprehension. Why not just go in and get him? Or maybe the police officer just really respects the cinema. Yeah, bearing in mind they are arresting him for a fucking murder. Yeah. Why? <laughs> and they're going and going, oh, I've got a great idea, Tim. I'm going to do this thing, right? Where I'm going to write it down on a bit of paper. It's like, can you just go arrest that murderer before he kills somebody else, please? DS Davy. You don't have to come up a new method for arresting someone every time. Yeah, he's just outside trying to think of a new method. He's like, he got away. He got away, Dave. He got away. Yeah, he gets back to the office. All your eBay stuff's arrived. He's got a jack-in-the-box. He's got yeah. a bow and arrow. <laughs> they all just say, you're nicked, nicked. on them. <laughs> he, was, he really wanted a spin-off, didn't he? Just called, you're nicked. Yeah, you're nicked. He's just going around nicking people. Um, can you pitch it to me? Yeah, it's um, written and devised by D.S. Owen. Uh, I nick someone in a new way. It's a bit like Beatles about, but they're actually criminals, so it's okay. Don't have to get waivers. Don't have to get waivers from them. (laughs) What's your uh, most British thing? I like them going for a curry at lunchtime and having two pints. And it's a very British Indian restaurant. There's the wallpaper, tablecloth, the waiter wearing a velour tuxedo in nice burnt red. Yeah, at one o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, I love it. And I love that it looks like an absolute mess on his plate, the way that Jonathan's just mixed all the salad and everything. Why do you want to know if I've had lunch? Because I haven't. I, I thought we could go somewhere and talk. I know you're a whiz at all these magic tricks and things, and I just wanted to pick your brains about something. Another trait of Jonathan Creek is, obviously this was made in 1997, so, you know, society's moved on. So there will be some things... That are really not alright. So this element we're calling, that's not alright, is it? <laughs> and I think the way that they refer to quite a lot of women models in it mm. um, is kind of not on. Hello, Danny. DeVito. Davina. Have you done much professional modelling, may I ask? Which is odd, because Danny DeVito uh, becomes another thing in Jonathan Creek, sort of, in in future episodes. But, Actually, yeah, re- referring to a lady as looking like Danny DeVito probably isn't alright, is it? What do you have for that's not alright? Yeah, so the objectification of women in the magazine world is obviously very common in the magic world as well. Yes. You know, damsels in distress and women in peril is a common, especially in big stage illusion. And there's a bit where obviously Adam Klaus is very over-sexualized. 
And that's okay. He can be a very sexual man in his leather trousers. Yeah. But he's quite predatory because there's a bit where he spots Francesca in the audience and he says to his assistant, Jenny, black skirt and jacket, red blouse. Can we do that? And she's writing that down notes. And then you see in the second half of the act, he goes out into the audience. And it's a crap bit of magic where he says, instead of going, who would like to volunteer? And lots of people putting their hands up and him just picking her. He just walks yeah. up to her row and goes, you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I was the audience, I'd be like, well, I think she might be a plant then. Is that all right? Probably no, not. No. I don't think it is. Can we do that? <laughs> This is another one. Is that all right? Because we need to evaluate some of these. Uh, yeah. Maddie gets 10,000 returns on her book in Australia. And she says, 10,000? What did they do? Print them on boomerangs? <laughs> Tell me about it. Ooh. Yeah, it's probably not all right, is it? I don't know if it is. It's like, I don't know if that was probably even funny in 97. I mean, it was probably, yeah, it definitely wasn't. But I mean, that is definitely one of the lines. You chuck a laugh track underneath that. Yeah. Pretty, people yeah. are going, that's brilliant. Ah. Uh, Boomerangs is from Australia. Renners has done it again. <laughs> okay, let's open up, Daniel, the Grot Cabinet. <laughs> Considering this was on primetime family viewing in 1997, David Renwick has some quite sexy ideas uh, when it comes to Jonathan Creek. And you just you get quite a lot of stuff all the way through it. Like, other than the fact that the first thing we see is a big set of boobs. Um, but like they might be in painting form, but that's fine. But also, it looks like Wacky uh, Phoenix's Joker makeup. Yeah, <laughs> it really does. It's unfortunate that the best line in all of Jonathan Creek, I think, happens in the first three minutes. Colin Baker <laughs> tells his mistress on the phone, "I just wanted to get around here and make me bark like a sea lion." That is a line and a half, yeah. isn't it? It's interesting. Sea lion, obviously, not dog. Bit more exotic, bit more interesting. It shows he's eccentric, doesn't it? Shows, yeah, he, shows he's a travelled man. He's met Picasso, he's met Dali, he knows about sea lions. <laughs> but there's lots of really, really odd bits like that. The way that they talk about women, like, I think Adam refers to her as a heart attack on legs. <laughs> oh, I want to lie beside her in a bath of warm glue. Oh, so odd. Like, that doesn't even sound good. <laughs> no, like, because you wouldn't be able to, because it would set. Uh, well, I was thinking, like, you know that clear glue you get at school that's not really, like, glue? Yeah, it's like that. The one, with, the one where you can paint it on your face and peel it off like Hannibal Lecter. There's a couple of, like, little lines and stuff like that. Francesca's, though, saying, you know, sometimes when you make love, it's like a nuclear explosion between your thighs. How do you even say that on set? Because it's not even you can, like, if you're a director, you can't even blame the writer and be like, yeah, I'm really sorry. It's not my words, though. He's the writer director. So he's like, say it. He's telling her about it. You got to say this now. Love David Renwick. He's like saying to his mates, honestly, whatever I write, they have to say. So I can cast all these people, and then at the end of the day, I get to take home that footage. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything else to put in the grot cabinet before we close it for this week? I don't know if it's grot. I I think Trevor and Maddie's relationship is quite strange. He just like turns up and he like slips his hand down her shirt. She doesn't seem to mind and they could be, be in a relationship, but I think it happens in a few other episodes. So I don't know whether this yeah. is a little thing that Renwick likes. You know anything about art? I know what I like. Trevor. I think we should have a moratorium. Moratorium? What's that, a polite word for bugger off? I always thought that it is 
kind of him showing that she's quite m- like modern in that time where she's yeah. just like yeah she's not like a housewife she thinks for herself and she kind of lets people put their hand down her top and she's cool with it man she's just a cool sassy lady out on the town letting people touch her up while she's on the phone or hacking into phones doing her investigations yeah. <laughs> and doing her journalism we'll, we'll shut the grot cabinet um, but that kind of brings us on nicely to open up the romance because, they, you know, they, there's a will they, won't they set up from the start. There's a Scully and Mulder, yeah. This is bigger than Scully and Mulder for me in the late yeah. 90s. I'm not very good on subtext with women. I think the safest thing is just to ask. I have no desire whatsoever to go to bed with you or to see you naked or to enter into any kind of relationship that involves undoing a zip. He's drawn to her. And she's um, definitely intrigued by him. And there's lots of little moments. We've already referred to some of them when he builds the model. Or when she uses the chair suspension illusion. He's obviously a bit antsy and anxious because he thinks she's going to break it. And when yeah. he goes down to unbuckle it, obviously the movement is very similar to him undoing her bra. I think you get off on puzzles like this. You just don't want to admit that I've whetted your appetite. Mm. So it's definitely a nice bit of tension there. But then there's like, he even goes straight out. Like, you know, he goes on to her house and he sees uh, Trevor. Why is he going there that late at night? Yeah. Come on, John. He sees Trevor going into the house. He's like, they've been for a few beers because it looks like they're a bit pissed going out, going home together. And then, you know, he he lets her have it on the phone where he says, Why did you lie to me? What? You wanted my help and you knew the best way to get it was to make me think you were single and unattached. I'm sorry, what am I being accused of here? That I led you on with inducements of sexual favours? Oh no, you made that very clear right up front, that you had no interest in me whatsoever. So how did I deceive you? By telling me, categorically, that you weren't interested in me in such a way that implied you were interested in me. (laughs) I don't have to listen to this. Well, this is also, I think, maybe a key in the first episode that I, 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 as he wrote in on. He has a quite brilliant analytical mind. And yet yeah. the only time I think in the episode where his analytical power fails him when it is to do with a deduction about Maddie. Yeah. He latches on to this assumption because she eats onion rings that she must be yeah. single, which is a wild inference and deduction to make. Makes no yeah. sense. What makes you think I live alone? Well, you're not sleeping with anyone on a regular basis. Oh, really? Those onion rings hang around for days. Is that right? One, you're assuming that they do and you don't brush your teeth. You're secondly assuming she cares or her partner cares. So I think his kind of computer goes wrong when it comes to that because he wants to believe she's single. Mm. Yeah, that's true, actually. It's also, you know, quite an odd thing to do is just like assume that she is and when thinking that she's not getting angry at her. You'd be like, who do you think you are? You just met her. But then, you know, blaming her. I think this comes back to like he's got no experience with women at all because he also jonathan seems quite prudish when adam sexes up the tricks and he puts in um the whip into the iron maiden trick and things like that klaus almost implies that jonathan is a bit of a eunuch a bit asexual well i think like his his assistant says about him is like when do you think he last did it do you think he ever did, did it? it yeah <laughs> and, <laughs> and i think this is what we're going to track throughout these seasons with the, mm. with the maddie stuff is is jonathan becoming more aware of this stuff and having more of a life than just buying a barbie and two cheese sandwiches every day (laughs) well if you ever want any help again don't ring me whatever you do (laughs) snooping around people's houses getting sadistically molested by vacuum cleaners no thanks i promise i'll never bother you again good night night 
On the next episode, we join Jonathan and Maddie in the first of many locked room mysteries in Jack in the Box. Up the Creek is produced by RKG. We make videos and podcasts about games, movies, basically anything fun, including 23-year-old BBC shows about a magician's assistant who lives in a windmill. If you'd like to find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash RKG.